Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to sit on the couch and watch some TV, but since we can't watch TV through a podcast, we are going to be talking about TV show theme songs and the people who wrote them. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Okay, I'm sitting at the couch. I have my um, potato chips. And I'm ready to watch some television on our podcast today. That was a great introduction, Mike. Um, yeah, today's episode is all about television theme songs because we uh, scratched our heads and said, wow, we've interviewed an awful lot of songwriters who just happen to have written some amazing and memorable songs that we all know because they're tele- television theme songs. And what's really cool about, I think, this episode is all except one is actually a songwriter who makes his profession writing television theme songs, and that would be Mike Post. All the rest of them are songwriters and arrangers who just happened to have had that opportunity when somebody came to them and said, hey, will you write this? Yeah, sure, okay. But other than that, they had a whole career doing other stuff. So it's kind of cool that they're all assembled today talking about one little part of their career. So in our episode today, we're going to hear the backstory behind such television themes as SWAT, MASH, The Addams Family, and Chico and the Man, among others. Yes, definitely uh, quite a uh, list of songwriters and arrangers today. Uh, and you'll definitely get to know them a lot more and just see what an influential part of music and pop culture that they're a part of there. Uh, so today we're going to we're going to hear from Vic Mizzy, Ray Evans, and Jay Livingston, Barry Dvorzen, Lalo Schifrin. Mike Post, Johnny Mandel, Dan Sawyer, and Jose Feliciano, just to name a few. <laughs> just those few, you know, no big deal. Uh, we're also going to give a couple shout outs to some other uh, great songwriters and arrangers that uh, we've, we've interviewed as well. And to start things off, we're going to be hearing from Vic Mizzy, and he's going to be talking about how he got into the career of songwriting and arranging and also, he will be talking about the TV shows Adam's Family and Green Acres. I started as a songwriter, a popular songwriter. And, um, and that started me into arranging, you know, and orchestrating. And uh, after that, I got into background music. But I was always an arranger as well as a songwriter. I made my living writing songs. But at the same time, I was one of the few songwriters in the Brill Building milieu. Uh, in Manhattan, uh, that, uh, orchestrated. Uh, most songwriters never even wrote their own piano parts. They would get an arranger who worked for the music publishers or independent arrangers to put the melody down and he would put the lyric down. And, but I was able to do everything by myself. I was a self-taught arranger. And did you arrange for various dance bands as well? Oh, well, no, not for dance, dance bands. 
I was married to uh, a, a, a singer uh, whom I met, wound up uh, marrying, uh, called Mary Small. They called the little girl the big boy. She was very young, and I was young. And after the Adams family, wasn't young and foolish, was young and ghoulish, I guess. <laughs> but um, and I started orchestrating for her, and she she was a big radio star, and she had a lot of orchestras behind her, and I would orchestrate for um, uh, for the shows, and I got to orchestrating not for dance bands, but for uh, so-called radio orchestras like Ray Block. I did uh, when she would go on Andre Castellanos' show, who was a very big uh, symphonic type of. Uh, of a conductor, I would do the orchestration. That's what I did. I did orchestrations for her and a few more other people. And uh, and I was a good arranger. Uh, I, I was able to do a lot of things. But uh, that's how I. That's what I was doing to make a living at that time. What What is interesting, and I think our our audience would definitely be interested in, is the fact that um, when you actually started writing songs, you were a teenager. Yeah. Well, I wrote my uh, I wrote song. I started writing little melodies when I was about thirteen and fourteen. In fact, when I was fourteen and a half, a fellow in my neighborhood, Danny, uh, teamed me up with a fellow called Irving Taylor. Uh, who was just a few years older than I was, and we started writing songs. And one of the first songs that I wrote was a song called There's a Far Away Look in Your Eye, which we published, uh, I had published, and uh, when I was 16, I became the youngest member of ASCAP. And it was a hit in those days. But don't forget, a lot of your audience may not know these songs, um, but I'm only telling you uh, a hit was when your song appeared on a hit parade. That's that's when it was a hit. They had ten songs. Uh number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. To make a long story more revolting, that that's what the story was. I was on a hit parade. And from then on I started writing a lot of hits. I was on the Fred Allen Amateur Hour and also on the Major Bose Amateur Hour, which is what got me the the uh in the inside with a music publisher, especially Fred Allen show. And that's how I got my stuff. Oh, and I was writing varsity shows at NYU. Wow. That's that's what we we wrote the sketches, songs, everything. I did orchestrations. And uh that was a big start. So at the age of sixteen, seventeen and eighteen I was doing very, very well for to break in because it was very difficult to get your songs published. You know, especially when I was 16, I looked around 9 or 10. I didn't shave till I was around 18. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this, just for clarification on my behalf. On a, when, when we're talking about a hit, especially those that were um, on the hit parade. That's it. These were based on record sales or records, accommodation? Well, sheet music and record sales. And uh, they have a sort of a... Um, Certain system that they gauged how many performances your songs would, your song would get during the week, and each week there was a listing. So it was a matter of being on the bestseller list for recordings, bestseller list for sheet music, and then in popularity. And that combination was what the uh, hit parade judged the, uh, the standing of your song on their program. So if I say I was number one, I was number one. And I had a lot of number one songs, uh, which you probably don't know, uh, but uh, especially songs like Three Little Sisters that I wrote when I was a, 
sailor in the Navy. My dreams are getting better all the time, which is when I was in the Navy. I wrote a lot of songs when I was in the service. Hmm. And well, it's interesting about Three Little Sisters is um, I had actually read somewhere, and I, I sure wish I knew where, that it was written with the um, the Andrews sisters in mind. Yes, correct. They recorded it. And um, I didn't think in terms of the Andrews sisters, particularly when I wrote the song. I just wrote it as a song because the idea of the song was one loved the soldier, one loved the sailor, one loved the lad from the Marines. And it happened to fit the Andrews sisters, coincidentally. And they recorded it. I had a, I had a lot of recordings in those days. You see, in those days, you just didn't depend on one record. You, as soon as somebody would record it, everybody would cover on it. You know, by that I mean every other record label would want to have one of their artists recording it. So an average hit, you might get as many as 20 different recording stars or band leaders wow. recording your songs. I, um, you know, I did the Adams Family. I scored the, and I wrote, wrote it and I wrote Green Acres. But on the Adams Family, the studio, didn't want to pay money for a singing group, so I sang it and I overdubbed myself three times. So when you hear the soundtrack, it's really, it is I who have to be singing. You're kidding. The honest to goodness, <laughs> I'm singing the original soundtrack on the Adams Just family. because they were too cheap to hire someone? Pardon me? Just because they were too cheap to hire Yeah, they didn't want a group, so they so I sang it and I overdubbed myself. Well, I thought I could have been a very big singing star because I have natural distortion. Let me understand this. I know very little about uh, television music. You did the theme, but you would also do the music. Yeah, the, the background music. Right, background music. So how did that work? Did you have? Did they kind of um, film it first, and then you would? Yeah, you film the you film it first, and then I look at the picture. I've done I've done hundreds and hundreds of segments because I've done a lot of TV, and I look at it, and I'm very fast composing because I started as a songwriter. I'm about the only popular songwriter that became a film scorer. No, the, the only other one, let's see, was uh, Hank Mancini, who had a natural gift for songwriting. Really? Hmm. But I, uh, I became a film scorer. And uh, But I did more than that. I created... Did you know I, di I directed the uh, main title of The Addams Family on camera because the, the regular director didn't know how to work a click train. He said, look, you do it. You planned it. And I set up the cast and the camera, and I directed it. Wow. And I created the whole visual thing. I created Green Acres, what you see on the film. I wrote the lyrics, music, did the score, and I planned the visual concept of it that you see on the screen. Not easy to and do. And both, both shows are very highly syndicated. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've done other series, and I'm just giving you two. I've done a lot of movies. In fact, um, I've done all the Don Knotts movies. Would you believe that? Like The Ghost and Mr. Chicken? <laughs> oh, that's a great that's a Yeah, great movie. and then the, there was an organist, the contract, the music contract, the hired, and the guy couldn't play foot pedal, pedals, and he panicked during the scoring session. So we had to dismiss him, and I had to sit down at the organ and look through a reverse mirror and play the organ. And over the years... We get hundreds and hundreds of requests for the organ music. <laughs> well, that's a classic bit. I mean, anyone who's seen that movie can tell you. They can oh, yeah. Oh, no, that, that theme, everybody knows it. But everybody asks me, what about that organ music? But that was, it's I who plays the organ. I'm an organist, you see, as well as a pianist. And I also have a studio with 
electronic electronic synthesized equipment. So at any point during the movie, do they actually show you as the organist? No, no, no. God, no. See, the, the keys move by themselves. See, my organ track is laid in by the music editor. You see the notes going down, but it's supposed to be the ghost of Mr. Ch- well, look, whatever it is, all I can tell you is uh, uh, that's what happened. And well, I thought at the very end they show the organist or something. No, 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 no. It shows, it, oh, yeah, at the end of the picture, it shows this Liam, I forget his name, Liam something, an oh. old-time Irish actor. That's at the punchline, you know, near the picture. But that was the whole gimmick, so I had to play the organ. <laughs> but singing the Adams Family theme, that's quite something. I bet. Well, I, 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 I wish they did film you playing the organ and looking in the mirror. That must have been a sight. Well, on, on the Adams Family, when I played it for the producer, David Levy, and uh, uh, the head of Filmways, who was Al Simon, there was no piano around except the piano in the prop room. And uh, Tony, who was the prop guy, Tony, I forget his last name, real sweet man, he says, look, this piano will bring you luck. I says, why? He said, because Deanna Durbin, he went through a litany of people who used that piano. So in order to go in, it was we had to stumble through cobwebs and um, a Bella Lugosi type of uh, atmosphere. We finally get to the piano, it's closed, and I said, there was no stool. So I lift up the little hood of the keyboard, and I started, ba-ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-ba-bum. And the minute I started, I could see the smiles on David Levy and Al Simon's face, and I knew I was in, because I was so used to hearing reactions to my music and songs when I used to demonstrate it, uh, used to demonstrate them uh, for music publishers. I could always tell by looking at them if they were going to take the song. Hmm. And most of the time I was right. I take chances in my sound. Uh, the Adams Family was the first show that used a, uh, a harpsichord for background music. Hmm. And by the way, I played the harpsichord you know, the studio didn't want to spend money, so there were only four musicians. Yeah. Uh, Green Acres only had eight musicians. Sounds bigger, but that's all we had. And I used different instruments that were never used on TV before or in movies, like an electronic hum- harmonica, a bass harmonica, fuzz guitar. And I had the best musicians in the business because they could read anything. Okay, I think it was pretty strategic that we uh, just played Vic Mizzy without talking too much about him because that's all you really need to do is just listen to this guy. Boy, what a character. Absolutely amazing guy. And he sort of personifies that sort of haphazard songwriter. It just sort of a career just sort of materialized because he was in the right place at the right time with the right amount of talent, right amount of ideas, great connections, and uh, a lasting career. You know, one thing after another. I mean, imagine, you know, he started off writing for the Mills Brothers. Uh, he did a song in 1953 called The Jones Boys, which was kind of a big hit for the Mills Brothers. Uh, Doris Day had a big hit in 1945 with one of his songs called My Dreams Are Getting Better. And he just kept kind of reinventing himself as a songwriter. And when television came around, as we heard, he utilized the click track to uh, create The Adams Family and then later on Greed Anchors. And 
And then uh, later in his career, he wrote uh, for movies, including a fantastic comedy with uh, Don Knotts. If you haven't seen it, it's actually one of my favorites called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Um, if you remember that movie, that great little organ music that's kind of the spooky part of the, the theme of the music that was actually written and played by Vic. And then later on in his career, he was asked to do the music for the Spider-Man movies and did Spider-Man 2 and made some great money on that. So uh, just an amazing guy and a fantastic career. Um, by the way, it's kind of funny. I, I put a little, uh, a couple of years together just to kind of give us an idea as we go along. The Adams Family um, ran on television in 1964 to 1966. Um, so it's amazing. And then, of course, all those movies, he was a part of those, too. But it was only two years. Seems like it uh, it lasted a lot longer than that. But it's so memorable. That theme, I think, is really what makes that such an iconic television program. And then Green Acres ran for a little bit longer from 1965 until 1971. And uh, just really kind of cool stuff. Again, kind of going on this theme that these songwriters didn't necessarily set out to be television theme songwriters. It sort of just happened. And the best example, I think, of our entire podcast today is the two gentlemen we're going to hear from now. Iconic songwriters from that golden age of songwriting, from, you know, um, being staff writers at MGM and writing for what, three Academy Award winning songs? I mean, unbelievable. We're talking about Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. And in addition to their amazing songwriting partnership, they were best friends. They were each other's best man at their weddings. They were with each other at the birth of their children. I mean, a really, really neat story in addition to the amazing output that they gave us as songwriters. Um, and I probably should list, uh, the, now that I teased you with the fact that they won three Academy Awards, they were for Button and, Buttons and Bow, uh, Mona Lisa and K. Sarah Sarah. By the way, um, Mona Lisa isn't often thought about as being a, uh, Academy Award winning song because the movie it was in wasn't well, uh, known, but, it had Nat King Cole singing that amazing song, and it was uh, no doubt one of the best songs of that year. So very, very cool. Incidentally, um, in their interview, they also told us that the original lyrics for Mona Lisa was Prima Donna. And every time I hear that song, I hear Prima Donna instead of Mona Lisa. <laughs> Hope it didn't ruin it for you. Uh, anyway, fantastic guys. Uh, absolutely. What a thrill it was to uh, glean some of their stories and some of their history. It's a curious thing. You actually both went to uh, college together. Yeah, that's where we met. And, uh, you know, Jay had a dance band at the University of Pennsylvania, which I played in, which eventually led us into trying to become songwriters, which eventually paid off. And uh, uh, that's why we're talking to you now. We played on a lot of cruise ships, and on our last cruise coming up the river, Ray said to me, let's stay in New York and be songwriters. What are you talking about? Sure. So I liked, I always wanted to write lyrics, and that's how it started. 
and six years later we had our first big hit. Yeah, it took a while, but we never quit. That's for sure. Thank goodness. And the, and the cruise ships, we did a lot of wonderful, a lot of saw a lot of wonderful places. We were in Russia in the forties. We were all over South America. We uh, made a lot of trips to the West Indies. So we were living like millionaires, even though we were paupers. But uh, it all uh, ended up beautifully. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mr. Livingston, let me ask you this: Now, you were um, born in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, as a as a young youngster, did you have ambitions of being a musician? Well, I played the piano a lot, and I thought I was a big shot piano player in this little town near Pittsburgh. When I got to New York, I found I wasn't that good a piano player. There's some great piano players there, so I thought writing song might be a good outlet, and it worked out fine. Yeah. I play pretty good, but not that good. Tell about Little Jack Little, your your hero. And we're here with Little Jack Little from W.O.W. Cincinnati. Oh, really? I picked up W.H.A.M. Rochester, too. Already? Huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. I was a D. You know what a DXer is? No. They don't have any. A DXer was a guy who tried to get all the radio stations he could. Oh. And I got 230 before I quit. Wow. So I know a lot of the stations around the country. I still remember the call letters. Amazing. Like, yeah. Like collecting stamps. You'd collect radio stations and see how far you could get. It was fun to compare with your friend who heard what when. Yeah. <laughs> so when did the ambition of being a, a songwriter take effect, Mr. Livingston? I mean, was this something that just kind of a, an idea came to you, or were you given a position? Well, that's Ray's question. He always wanted to be a lyric writer, right? That's for sure. And as I say, coming up the Hudson River on our last cruise, we'd been all over the world living like millionaires, and uh, we weren't millionaires. And I, the idea of staying in music or showbiz was so attractive, so I said to Jay, uh, very stupidly, let's stay in New York and write songs, not realizing how you know, uh, how tough it was going to be and how lucky you had to be. And six years later, it paid off, and as I say, that's why uh, we're here talking to you now. We didn't want any nine-to-five jobs. We wanted that's for to be sure. Independent, right? <laughs> so, how were those um, first six years? I mean, it, it, a lot of lesson learning. I'm, I'm assuming, just how the business works and what it really yeah. takes. And, and you were saying also, it takes a lot of luck. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, luck uh, happens. That's right. Sure. But you got to take advantage of it. That's right. When sure. We got our job at Paramount. We luck was in there, but we had to uh, come through. You know. So uh, luck is part of it, but if you don't come through, then luck doesn't help you. <laughs> no. And during those six years, you know, we were knocking on doors, writing songs at night. Jay was supporting himself by uh, as a, co- uh, a, a cocktail pianist in different little restaurants and things. And every now and then, I could get a job. I, I went to the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I could get a job doing some accounting work or something like that. And uh, somehow we managed to survive. And then uh, we did have our first hit in 1940, um, a song called Goodbye Now. It was on the hit parade for six or seven weeks, mainly uh, through records by Horace Hyde and Martha Tilton, Woody Herman, and uh, Frankie Masters. And uh, uh, then the war came along, and there was a hiatus for four or five years. Then we came out to Hollywood in 1944 and uh, got to Paramount Studios in 1946. And uh, from that point on, life became much more exciting. <laughs> the money was much more steady then, huh? That's for sure. That's right. Yeah, we're getting a weekly salary. The songwriters got a weekly salary. That was a, a, a real treasure. <laughs> we got called by the head of the music department at Paramount. A long series of stuff happened before that, of yeah. course. And uh, he said, we need somebody to write songs for the short subjects. 20-minute shorts accompanied the movies, and they all had songs in them. And the big-time writers didn't want to write the shorts. So they had to hire some unknown guys, which was us. 
and he said, "I can only pay it, pay you two hundred dollars a week, but it'll get better if, if you if you show if you uh, come through with something." So on the way out, I said to Ray, "Is that two hundred a piece?" And I was afraid to ask him. We didn't even know it was two hundred a piece. We thought it might be for both of us. So we got our first check. That was a lot of money then. Oh, it's like we felt like millionaires, you yeah. know. But I had eaten money and everything else, and Jay got married shortly after, and I got married mm-hmm. shortly after that, and so uh, that was the uh, the start in a nutshell. That's terrific. So who um, who's come up with the um, the ideas first? Well, in, in our days at Paramount, generally it was the, uh, you know, we, we'd, have, we'd get it from a script. They'd, they'd, they'd say, they'd show us a script, they'd say, we need a song here, we need a song there. And it was up to either one of us who could, uh, uh, you know, think of what the uh, the best premise would be to to uh, to fit in that script. Now, I don't compose. Jay does all the composing, but we both work on lyrics. And generally, I try to, you know, once we had a title, I tried to write a lot of lyrics to show how that title could uh, be developed. And um, on our first big, big hit, which really consolidated our position in Paramount to each his own, I wrote a couple pages of lyrics, and one line, uh, line caught Jay's fancy, two lips must insist and two more to be kissed. That gave him the beginning of the melody. Then we forgot all about the lyrics I'd written. He finished the melody to his satisfaction a few days later, and we went back and started over again using those lines, two lips must insist and two more to be kissed. And of course, that was a tremendous, tremendous hit for us in the 40s, maybe the biggest song of the 40s. So that's in general how we tried to work. Wow. <laughs> now, we do that a lot, right? Right, so I, and I find one that gives me a start on a melody, or I write a melody separately, either way. Yeah. But uh, then we both sit down and write the words. Yeah, and forget about what's been done before, because at that point on, and, uh, you know, the words and the music should be one, should be of a piece, and that we do the best we can, and if it comes out right, then uh, we're, we're, you know, we've had a hit, and if it doesn't, then better luck next time. We switch, basically, from um, movies to television, oh, uh, how, and Broadway. And, and Broadway. How different was that? I mean, you were locked into this movie uh, for a while. Was it a was it a welcome change? Well, most of us are written for the movies. Yeah, that's what you're saying. But the switch from Broadway to TV was it a different uh, technique? A different uh, was there different more pressures or well, whatever? Not really. The Bandance is saying they had a, a half a minute. Yeah, you know, so you had to write something that took place for a half a minute. It was a whole different style. Mr. Ed, uh, we wrote Mr. Ed. And uh, they went to Italy to make the recordings because it's cheaper to do that. And they had an Italian opera singer sing Mr. Ed. <laughs> and I must have been awful. And they came back and they called and they said, we're going to call me and said, we're going on the air in a week. Could you sing to this Italian track? Because we like the way you sang it. Then we'll get a singer to come in. They never did get a single. That's my voice on Mr. Ed from now on. As I say, that that's right from the horse's mouth. Right. <laughs> you know, it's so funny you said that because I just uh, uh, interviewed um, Vic Mizzy, who told me that was his voice on the Adams Family. Oh, that right? I didn't know that. And I know Vic Mizzy very well, and I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. No, I him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once again, that was Ray Evans and Jay Livingston talking about their work on Bonanza, which ran for 14 years from 1959 to 1973. And they also talked about their work on Mr. Ed, which ran for five years, 61 to 66. Very cool stuff. If you want to hear more from Ray and Jay, they're in another podcast that we did called Songwriting Teams. It is episode 55. And you can find that wherever you are listening to this podcast. Uh, Next up, we're going to hear from Barry Dvorzen. 
And Barry was a songwriter that did a lot of work and uh, actually um, did a lot of work on Young and the Restless, which you'll hear him talk about. And then he'll be talking about the theme song for SWAT that he composed. So here is Barry. I got in touch with a great producer and director called Stanley Kramer. And he was doing a movie about college rebellion. And he said, well, maybe this kid with his background in pop music and rock would be a better choice than the normal composer. And so he took a chance on me. And I did my first movie with Stanley Kramer, a legend. The picture came out. Nothing much happened with the picture. Uh, nothing much happened with the songs. Um, but Stanley loved the music. So when he did a second picture called Bless the Beasts and Children, I, based on a Glendon Swarthout novel about a bunch of misfit kids in a summer camp who try to save a herd of buffalo, he thought of me and called me up and said, uh, I want to do this picture with you. Well, I was so pleased and threatened flattered. And so uh, I signed down to do the picture. And the main title, Bless the Beasts and Children, was recorded by the Carpenters. I was nominated for an Academy Award, and it became a hit and, uh, and a very successful piece of music. But oddly enough, another piece of music from the picture became even bigger. You see, when you do a movie, you do a series of dramatic cues, you know, for different scenes. And, and so you get performances when that picture plays, you name those cues, so you give them names. In this particular case, uh, the young boy, who was kind of the star, was accidentally killed trying to free the buffalo. It was a very poignant and meaningful moment in the picture. And I, my inexperience, had painted me into a corner. I had this major key. Main title song. Well, you can't play a major key against a kid that's just been killed. And I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? It wouldn't be appropriate to write something completely new. It wouldn't relate to what I've been building throughout the picture. And then something occurred to me. I said, you know, the accompaniment is very recognizable. It's a motif where you go, you know, to the ninth, back to the tonic, to the ninth, to the tonic. I said, I'll use that motif, except I'll put it in a, a minor key. So that will identify it with the main title, but then of course I'll have to write a new melody. And because it was such an important scene, I took a lot of time with that melody. The same time you would take if you were trying to write a hit, which is very different from doing a dramatic cue. You know, that, you look at the scene, you compose the music, and it's meant to go by once, and once only and you don't give it the same love and care that you would give a main title or an end title. So this cue was called Cotton's Dream. As I said, the picture came out, the album came out, Bless the Beast, 
and Children was nominated for an Academy Award, which I didn't win, but I was there. Uh, and it was a hit. And then about two years later, uh, a producer called me up and said, you know, I listened to this Bless the Beast and Children album, and there is a cut on there called Cotton's Dream. I said, yes. He says, that's a very beautiful melody. I'd like to make it the main title for my new daytime show that's coming on. What do you think of that? I said, well, if you were here, I'd probably be kissing your hands. That's what I think about it. I said, of course you can do it. Uh, that's great. And so Cotton's Dream became theme for the young and the restless. And it came out. The show was an immediate daytime hit. A lot of recordings on theme for the young and the restless, but no real big record sales or hits or anything like that. But I was happy because that's network performances five days a week, and it was really nice to have my theme there. Cut to five years. Nadia Comaneci steals the heart of the world. You know, a young girl from, uh, where was it, Romania, on the double parallel bars got the first perfect score. And a gentleman in New York, a music library guy for ABC television, needed something to play behind this slow motion film clip. And once again, a lottery ticket time, he remembers in his library there was a soundtrack album called Bless the Beast, and there was a cut on there that might work. What are the chances? All right, what are the chances? He went to that album, put Cotton's Dream behind that film clip, and there was such a reaction to that clip and the music that A&M re-released it as Nadia's theme, which has turned out to be the biggest copyright of my career, uh, based on a cue that was only meant to be seen and heard once. So once again, I have to tip my hat to Lady Luck. Now, I have to give myself some credit. If I hadn't really wanted that melody to touch people, then that opportunity would have been wasted, you see. Um, so it all has to be there. Luck, dedication to your art, wanting to wait for that special emotional moment in your writing. and. Uh, and that song is, is crazy, you know, I mean, it's, it, it was Young and the Restless, then Nadia's theme, and then Mary J. Blige, two or three years ago, records No More Drama, based on that theme. So this little piece of music keeps reinventing itself. And I, I just stand back in awe. So I, I told you there were some interesting, but long stories. <laughs> That's fantastic. I hadn't done a television show and I knew Aaron Spelling through a mutual friend and we were in LA we were living here but we were in LA this particular night walking into a club called Pips and he was coming out with his wife and we said hello and my wife was pregnant at the time so they made a fuss about her belly and all that and <clears throat> kidding on the square I said Aaron You've had so many hit television shows. Give me a shot at one of them and I'll give you a hit. You've never had a hit off your shows. 
He looked at me, he said, well, let me think about it. And I didn't hear back. And then one day, I'm here in Santa Barbara, he calls me. Aaron Spelling's office, he gets on the phone. I got a show going on mid-season. Come on up to 20th, take a look at it. I want that hit you promised me. Well, you can't promise anyone a hit. That's a joke. I mean, I did it kidding on the square. You know, you can't say, sign me and I will give you a hit, you know. But what the hell, it got me in the door. So I'm in the screening room and the lights go down and this truck pulls up, the doors burst open and out the SWAT team comes. And I'm just crushed. A SWAT team. The show is about a SWAT team. Well, there were the L.A. riots. SWAT teams were very unpopular. How do you write a hit song about a SWAT team? You know, I, I was looking for a girl, a guy, two girls, two guys, a detective, something. But a SWAT team, I was crushed. Anyway, after I saw everyone chasing around with guns, I went up and talked to Aaron. He says, all right, give me that hit. I went, okay. Uh, so I went here <laughs> Santa Barbara, and after a week, I said, you can't write a hit about a SWAT team. That's simple. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give him the most exciting main title I can give him. And it's, he's going to forget that it's not going to be a hit. But it'll be exciting. It's rock and roll. It's something that you didn't see a lot on television at the time. And so I, I created that kind of theme. Uh, but it is rock and roll, and it, rhythm is such an important and integral part of rock and roll. So I called the music director for Spelling. I said, look, this is not your normal score. Could I have a session with just rhythm, a three-hour session with just rhythm, and then a second session with the orchestra and we'll do the score? And he said, no. He says, this is television. No. You know, we come in, we do the score in three or four hours. You're, I said, listen, that's going to be too tough because rhythm is not anything you can write. You can write out the chords, but you have to go in there and create it. I don't think I can do that with the whole orchestra waiting. So he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you one hour in front. So the rhythm will come in one hour early, and then the orchestra. I said, thank you. So I went into a new studio, new engineer, new people, got a rhythm in there. One hour later, it wasn't happening. Oh, what am I going to do? I, I just couldn't get it together. Now he comes out in the studio. Your hour is up. I've got the orchestra waiting in the coffee room. We've got to get this to tape. And I said, Rocky, please, I just need a little more time. It isn't ready. I, I don't have anything here. He said, I need to get it to tape now. And I said, I can't do that. I can't do that. So he said, are you, are you telling me you're taking over the session? I said, I don't want to take over the session. I can't go to tape. I don't have anything that, that, that I'm happy with. He said, you have taken over this uh, uh, session and it's your responsibility. And he stormed out of the studio. Well, here's my first television show. Already I'm so uptight and stressed, you know, I want to kill myself. 
Anyway, but I got back to business, and 40 minutes later, <laughs> I got the track I was looking for. Went down to tape. Now, the orchestra has been sitting in the coffee room for 45 minutes getting paid. And uh, I walked into the control room. It was icy. No one was talking to me. I got it down on tape. Then in came the orchestra, and I did my first By the Seat of the Pants television score, which is very different from motion pictures. This is get them down, lay them down, rehearse, get it down, you know, much faster pace. Uh, and so it, it was an experience that I, I can't say was my happiest one. Anyway, in the middle of this session, I heard him say to the engineer, uh, uh, you see, you, you record the main title on a 24-track, and everything else is done on a three-strike. So I heard him tell the engineer, Take, uh, give me a rough mix off the 24-track of the theme. So I said, excuse me, why? Mr. Spelling wants to hear it. I said, I, I've worked on this all month, and I'm already in deep trouble here. When Mr. Spelling hears this, I, I want him to hear it mixed. I don't want him to hear a rough mix off a 24-track. And he looked at me and said, son, you have done your first and last job in television. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is it. Finish it up. I don't want to ever see you again. And so there I was. I finished the session. When it was done, they all got up and stormed out. And I recorded, mixed the 24th track down and sent it on to 20th. That night, I'm in my place in LA and, and I called my wife. And she says, how did everything go? I said, how did everything go? I am drinking a double vodka right now. And I have never been so stressed in my life. Well, how did it go? I said, I don't know. I think it went well, but I don't know. Anyway, the next day, I heard nothing. Till about 1 o'clock, and then Len Goldberg, who was Aaron Spelling's partner, called. This was not a good sign. Len Goldberg was the hatchet man, you know? <laughs> and I said, uh-oh. <laughs> he gets on the phone, he says, Barry, that is the greatest theme we have ever heard. Aaron is dancing around the office. We love it. It's great. It's fantastic. Now, you went over budget. You can't do that in the future. This is television. But in this particular case, it was well worth it. And the end of this story is theme from SWAT became number one in the nation. The pop charts, number one. The R&B charts, number one. And probably is the biggest most successful theme to ever come from television. And you don't think I'm lucky? I think I'm very lucky. So that was uh, some fantastic storytelling by Barry. Uh, I just love the, the story, uh, the arc of one song and how it can have be used for all these different things throughout his career. Uh, and it's just amazing that it's, you know, gone from a movie to being a main title of The Young and the Restless, and then all of a sudden being used as part of the Olympics uh, for Nadia's, uh, you know, perfect score. I mean, like, it, that lifespan of that one song is such an amazing thing. Uh, and I just love 
love the story of him challenging Aaron Spelling that he could write a hit song for him. And uh, boy, did he. Because <laughs> I think we all know that SWAT theme song pretty well. It's just really amazing. It's almost so coincidental that these things have happened, and yet they're brilliant parts of Americana. You know, when we think of these television shows, we definitely think of these theme songs. And I, quite frankly, this whole uh, episode is getting me excited about interviewing more television theme song songwriters. I mean, there's a lot more out there. I love so many of them, and uh, maybe we can do a few more. Uh, it also reminds me that we have interviewed a, a, a several people for which I'd love to do a couple of shout outs during this uh, podcast, a few of which um, didn't necessarily talk a lot about it during their interview. But I think it's important to uh, recognize that we have some great interviews with other people who coincidentally had careers with television themes and or writing the music for TV shows, um, two of which I wanted to shout out. Um, sort of worked together. Uh, Jackie Mills, who was a fantastic jazz drummer and worked with all kinds of people in the jazz world, uh, teamed up with Frank Duvall, who was a great arranger and, in fact, did a lot of big band arrangements for um, Nat King Cole. We mentioned him earlier. Uh, Nat recorded a song called uh, Nature Boy that uh, Frank Duvall did the arrangement for. And then in the 60s, he fell into uh, working for television. And he and, and Jackie Mills uh, did several shows together. They did the music for Gidget, Family Affair, a little thing called The Brady Bunch, and My Three Sons. Um, now, growing up in that era, I know the Brady Bunch a little more uh, than I really want to admit, but there's uh, there's one particular episode for which uh, there's a talent show at the uh, at the junior high, and um, before one of the Brady kids comes on and does their act, and I think it was Peter was the magician and Cindy was his assistant, and um, just before that. Frank Duvall and his real-life daughter are playing this really comical saxophone duet that um, is boring the heck out of the uh, the judges, uh, and then they're wowed by Peter. But anyway, uh, that's Frank Duvall did the music for the Brady Bunch, and we had a great interview with him and and Jackie as well. Um, and a little bit later on, I'll tell you about a few other people that we interviewed who have had careers in uh, television and um, that we've been able to interview. But uh, to get back to our podcast today, um, the, another gentleman that we're going to be hearing from is Lalo Schifrin, who, um, for those jazz fans out there, probably know him well um, as an arranger and composer for some serious music way before he came to Hollywood. He was working with the Xavier Cougat Orchestra. He was arranging for this guy who had a little band called Duke Ellington. Um, he was working with Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, uh, just an amazing list of credits all before he came to Hollywood. And when he did in the 60s, he had some amazing credits and really became sort of the go-to composer of um, movies in the late 1960s. Things like um, Paul Newman's Cool Hand Luke. He did uh, Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry. He did a, um, a thing called Jaws. Uh, he did all kinds of stuff. 
And um, one of my favorite things that he did actually is on the soundtrack for Dirty Harry uh, is a little, very short little song. I think it was just like music in between scenes or something in the movie. I don't really remember it in the movie. I just remember it in the soundtrack. It's called Hot Dog. And it's like the perfect song for a television game show. They totally should have used that. I don't think anybody ever did. But if you think of a television game show theme, this song called Hot Dog was definitely the epitome of all that. Anyway, I wanted to say that Lalo and his wife were so, so nice to me when I went into their home. They were just so giving and um, just a remarkable person. And... Um, to me, that was when I really um, solidified in my mind that what I've been able to do for Nam in capturing this inter- these interviews is summed up in the word privilege. It, you know, it's a true privilege being a music fan and being able to shake hands with somebody like Lalo is just you know something I'll never forget and always be grateful for. So in this next segment, we're going to hear from Lalo talking about his work in TV and film, specifically the Mission Impossible theme, which is a very interesting story. And then after him, we're going to hear a familiar voice, uh, Mike Post, and he's going to be talking about the story of The Greatest American Hero and Hill Street Blues. When you began composing for television, that came before the movies, I believe. No, I was going to do the movie. Oh, you did movies first? Uh, uh, there was a man manager, uh, an agent, agent, African American agent. His name Clarence Avant. You heard of him? No. He was the agent of Jimmy Smith, oh. many, many, and. I was started to go with Dizzy to Europe a lot, doing the jazz at the Philharmonic with Norman Granz. And uh, going in, in the, one of those trips, going into the plane, Clarence Avent came to me and said, did you write the Gillespiana? I said, yes. Oh, when you come back from this trip, give me a call. And I gave him his telephone number. And I called him, and we got a meeting. And he says, what would you like to do? Well, I'd like to write music for movies and television. Oh, that can be arranged. And he knew everybody in the business. So he put me in touch with the president of MGM Records, MGM Movies. It was uh, MGM everything. this guy, his name was Arnold Maxim. He was, he had a, he had a meeting every month. We were in Manhattan, the ceiling, but he had a meeting every month here in Los Angeles with the board of directors of MGM. And when Clarence told him about me and said, okay, I'll get him. And he he gave me. He gave me his. Let me put it this way. He he told them that I should be working on TV and movies. 
And the, one of the first movies I did was Rhino. It was it was a small movie, but it was like a very important. It was Robert Culp, Harry Gardino. Uh, it was about in Africa how the the poachers they kill rhinos, rhinoceros, for the ivory. And how unfair that is! It's a, it's a movie, but they did a, that was the center. So I had to do the music, and I did it, and they liked it. They liked it in, in MGM, and I tried to give me more movies. Like the, the second movie I did was in France because I speak French, and the director didn't speak English. He was a, a very important René Clément. He did a, a movie with Alain Delon and Jane Fonda, and that was it was called I don't remember Le Fenin in French means the felines. It's a, it's a detective murder mystery. And again, they liked it a lot. So I started to, and in those days, when you work on everything, television and movies, because when there were movies, they were all the time. So television was all the time. And my colleagues like John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, they all worked at the same time in movies and television. So that's what I did. That's neat. <laughs> so for the movies, would you watch the movies or would you be told about certain scenes? No, no, I had to watch. I, I have to watch everything, mm. including television too. Mm. You have to watch everything. And that's where the ideas come and what to do. And it's fun to listen to some of the music that you've done for television and the movies, knowing your classical background, but also your love for jazz, because these themes keep sneaking in. Of course, uh, Mission Impossible, Mannix, all those things had elements of jazz and orchestra. And Man from Uncle, I think. No, I did Man from Uncle, I did only one episode. I didn't do the main theme. Mm. That it's, uh, I, 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 would, I would have loved to do it, but I didn't do it. <laughs> Tell me about Mission Impossible. How did that come about? Well, I was already established. I already had moved to, to Hollywood. Mm. As a matter of fact, another, another coincidence, the director, writer, producer of Mission Impossible, his name was Bruce Geller, and he lived about one block from here. But I didn't know that. <laughs> My life is full of coincidences. <laughs> so th this is the way he invited me to go. You asked me if I have to see the movie. No, in this case, he wanted to make sure that I absorb the idea of Mission Impossible. So he made me go. He invited me to go, but I, I said, I better go to the shooting of the pilot. They were doing the pilot shooting in, in somewhere here in Los Angeles. And I went and I got the whole ambiance, you know, and that's with, with the 
Martin Landau and every, uh, all the actors. Mm. So that's the way it happened. It's such a, oh, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, the main theme of Mission Impossible That's, that's the main thing. But there's another thing, which is very important. As a matter of fact, it's even more important. And it's, this is the mission accomplished. But there's, the real mission impossible is when they are working to see the suspense. And then... So that's, that was the other thing, and they loved it. That's very interesting. It's the perfect mu music for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it, it has also drums. And, 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 and the, the theme of Mission Impossible is a paramilitary operation. So that's why I did like that. You know, I met Steve Cannell on a beach where I almost got in a fight, blah, blah, blah. There's, that's a, another story. And he said to me, after spending about a week with him down in Balboa, I was 24 at the time, and he said, you know, I, if I ever get a chance to sell a script and convince a producer I think your music would be great in TV, and I said it, Bullshit, I'm not doing that. It's a little bitty speak. I'm in a rock and roll business, man. I'm a rock and roll record producer, arranger. I'm, that's what I do. I make hit records. So, of course, we best friends until the day he died, and all we ever did was give each other a maximum amount of bullshit about, you know, <laughs> what would have happened if we'd actually fought that day. What, what, you know, what would have happened if, if he'd have listened to me and not convinced me to, to do television music and you know what 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 if would it so at any rate we had had a bunch of successes Rockford Files blah blah black sheep whatever and then he goes on his own and becomes the deficit financer and one of the first shows was the greatest American hero so he says to me you know he shows me a script and we go out to lunch I read the script and we go out to lunch I go it's great it's really great. And he's saying Bob Culp and Bill, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I went, oh, yeah, that's, this is going to be good. This is going to be really, he said, it'll be funny as shit. The guy can't fly right, loses the instructions, blah, blah, blah. So he said, so let's do a song. And I go, a song? He goes, yeah, let's do a song. He says, let's have another hit record. Do a song. A song? I'm thinking, about losing the instructions? Are you an idiot? What, how do I do a song? He goes, I don't know. Don't you know any good lyricists? I said, gee, I know this guy named Stephen Geyer who's just brilliant. He's a kind of a folky, jazzy guy, really good guitar player, and he's brilliant. He said, well, why don't we talk to him? So I set up a thing. I take Geyer over to his office and have him read the script and go over and so he says, what, can, what do you think? He goes, oh, I'd love to be involved and I'd love to do something. And he says, what, what approach? He said, well, I think make it a parallel with love. You know, make it a romantic thing, you know. 
And he said, do you have any, have you started on anything? And he said, believe it or not, I have. And Steve went, okay. He said, I just gave it to you. Ken went, what? He said, believe it or not. He goes, oh, that's great. He goes, what else? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. Wait till I do it. You know, so Guy and I just went in a room. Didn't take two hours, you know. You know, it's a little and it's kind of kind of Michael McDonaldish, you know. It was all in that whole vibe that we were all, you know, crisscross and everybody was messing around with the same kind of, you know, sort of deal. So I was doing it too, and I'd already been producing Joey Scarberry, and so and and Cannell knew what he sounded like, and he he said Scarberry, and I said, yep. Smoke Tree, which was a little studio out in Chatsworth, was where I was working, and uh, it was, it just, you know, it's like every hit record, most of them just, they just go like that, they're just magic. What keyboard were you playing on Hill Street Blues? Uh, piano, oh, just, a, just a regular piano, uh, a Beckworth, out at Smoke Tree, and that's all that is, you know, it's a little compression, in fact, a lot of compression, and you know, and it's simple. It's simple. If I played it, it's simple. But, but I, I do honestly believe that I played it as, as well as I could, perfectly as well as I could. So once again, that was Mike Post and Lalo Schifrin before him. Um, we're going to back it up a little bit just to say some of the years that these shows ran. The show SWAT, who had its theme written by Barry Dvorzen, ran from 1975 to 1976, just one year. But it also had a movie that came out in 2003, and the series was rebooted in 2017, all with the same song. Uh, Mission Impossible, written by Lalo Schifrin, uh, ran for seven years, 1966 to 1973. And then Mike Post's uh, two shows that he wrote uh, music for, Hill Street Blues, ran for six years, 1981 to 1987. And then Great American Hero ran for two years, 1981 to 1983. And this is also a good time to shout out all the other things that we've done with Mike Post. We have his full interview posted on the NAM website. Uh, you can check that out by going to nam.org, n-a-m-m.org slash library, and search for Mike Post. And we also did a podcast episode um, only talking about him and his full interview, and that was episode number 66, if you'd like to check out that one as well. Up next, we're going to hear from Johnny Mandel, uh, who may have, you know, Written a theme song for a show you might have heard of before. Had a little short run, uh, MASH. I don't know if you guys have heard about that or not. <laughs> uh, and that ran from 1972 to 83, so for 11 years. Um, but he has such a interesting background because he is so knowledgeable and was so much a part of uh, jazz music and uh, just goes on a little bit about all of that and how that really captured his uh, fascination with music uh, and arranging. And so he's going to talk a little bit about that and then the uh, fun and kooky story about writing the title theme song for MASH. So here is Johnny Mandel. Now what started me writing was uh, like most kids in my generation or any generation, I grew up with my ear glued to the radio. 
And so I'd hear all these bands and I'd, they'd all had to play the same songs. It was a perfect workshop because since then, since rock and roll, everybody started do, writing their own songs and it was over for the publishers too as a result because they were having their own publishing operations. But again, getting back to what I was going to say is uh, I'd hear this song and I'd say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a very popular th song. I think it stinks. I don't see anything great about it. And then since everybody had to play the same songs, another band would come on and I'd say, wait a minute, that's that same song. I thought it was, I didn't like it. I thought it sunk. It, this is wonderful. And I, you know, uh, I said, okay, maybe the song wasn't bad. And then next, another band would come on and it would, it would be terrible and so forth. And I got really confused. And it took about a week or two for the light bulb to go on over my head to say, to, for me to say, it's not the song, it's not about the song at all. It's about the band that plays it and how come it's so different. Because somebody writes that music for the band. And uh, uh, what is that person even called? I didn't know what an ar arranger, I, somebody said, is an arranger. Every, nobody knew who an arranger was. There were no books on the subject. And, uh, you know, people thought an arranger maybe was somebody who moved chairs around. So anyway, when I realized that, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to write arrangements. I want to write, I didn't want to write songs. I wasn't thinking about that at all. And uh, since I saw an ad that uh, in, in Downbeat, which I read religiously, those were my two sources of reading were Downbeat and Metronome magazine. And those were like the Bible for me. I wanted to know who was in every band. And, you know, it was like baseball fanatics, like everybody, who was the leadoff guy in the 33 series? It was that same thing, who played that trumpet solo over on uh, Bugle Call Rag. And uh, this is all I wanted to know about. Um, and I was like that all through school. But anyway, uh, I saw in Downbeat, there was an ad that Van Alexander, who was a very famous, uh, uh, at that time, band leader, recording and everything, was taking students and I hit on my mother hard to, to get to let me study with him and Van immediately sort of uh, he showed me how uh, I won't go into the whole thing of like he showed me he, he went and when he realized I was serious he went to a closet in his apartment which was uptown New York and uh, brought out a big sheet of a big bunch of yellow paper and he opened it up and said look at this. I said, what's that? He said, it's a score. I said, what's a score? He said, a score is a snapshot of what everybody in the orchestra is doing for eight bars at the same time. And you show that there was like the four saxes in the orchestras at that time, three trumpet players, a couple of trombones, and piano, bass, and drums, and guitar. And I said, oh yeah? I said, how come they're all in different keys and everything? And he started explaining then the technicalities of this kind of thing. Instruments were built in different keys and so forth. And uh, he said, now this was what it looks like. We went through a few pages and now I'm going to show you what it sounds like. And he pulled out, unwrapped one of his brand new Bluebird records, you know, and 
I couldn't believe this was happening. This is like a really famous guy. And he plays the song, and he goes through the score, showing it to me as the music's going on. And he said, okay, you've seen, you've seen what it looks like, and you, you heard what it sounds like. Now, uh, you're going to start writing right away. He gave me a big blank pad of that blank yellow paper that, you, that I was looking at that he wrote on. He's, and he said, he showed me some other things, but he said basically, uh, okay, now go home and write something. And he threw me in the water and yelled swim, you know, it was one of those. But it's the only way to do it. You can't teach this. You really can't. Even in schools, they don't know how to teach it. You learn it by screwing up, by making mistakes. He said, and the most important thing is get somebody to play your music. Because if uh, you don't ever hear it, you'll never know what you did. And if you hear it, no matter how good or bad they are, you can get a good, you have the, like the closure, I, you know, which wasn't a word that was, that was a big word in the 70s, but you, unless you know what you did, you have no idea if you did good, you did well, you did badly. Mm -hmm. And what you really do is you learn this art by screwing up, just in that fashion. Said, and what you start doing is also playing records of something you like and see if you can write it down. I did a whole lot of that, learning to do takedowns. And it takes a long time to do this, but eventually you can look at a score and hear kind of what it sounds going to sound like, or you can hear something and close your eyes and see what it'll look like if you write it down. It's learning to see with your ears and hear with your eyes, kind of, if that makes any sense. But it takes a long time to get to that. And so I started early wanting to write music and did it. And the only way was to, to do that is to do it and, and make your mistakes and find out what you wanted to do again and what you didn't want to do again and so forth. And that's it. I gave you a long-winded description of what happened. Can you tell me about uh, Suicide is Painless? How did that come about? <laughs> well, all, Bob Altman and I were friends. I had done one movie with him before that, before MASH, called uh, That Cold Day in the Park. It was a little movie that, you know, with Sandy Dennis and Michael Burns and so forth, or Michael Parks, I think it was. And we, uh, we were, I got hired on MASH and it's very unusual that a uh, composer would be hired, you know, uh, on the early part of a picture. You're almost, unless it's a musical or something where music's an integral part, integral part. You uh, you're usually brought in last in the on the assembly line, usually to rectify. They think you can rectify mistakes that were made in the direction or in the editing or different things along the way. The old saying, oh, it'll be okay when we get the music in it. It ain't going to be okay when you get the music in it. The music can make it worse if it's wrong to start with. If it isn't built right, you're not going to be anything more than wallpaper, which won't hold up a house if it's built incorrectly, and so forth. It's, uh, I was there in the beginning, and Altman and I used to like to just hang out and party a bit, and he's sitting... He's telling me one night, he says, you know, 
The first scene we've got to shoot in MASH is this Last Supper scene when everybody's walking around the casket with the, you know, with the painless pole sitting there, waiting, to, you know, lying there, going to take the black capsule and go peacefully into the next world. And everybody's dropping things to see him into the next life, like play, you know, stuff of the 19, circa 1971 or uh, 1970 like uh, bottles of scotch and Playboy and things like that. None of the stuff that's since. And it's going to be the dullest scene in the world. We need a song. I said, okay. It's, he said, it's going to look like a crowd scene from a movie, you know. It's, it's nothing. I said, He's got to, he said, it's got to be the stupidest song ever written. I said, well, I can contribute something to that. <laughs> he said, it's got to be so stupid, it's and then he has a few more uh, sips of brandy and he says, uh, the painless pole is going to commit suicide. The, the name of this song should be Suicide is Painless. All right. This, that sounds, he says, it's got to be the stupidest song ever written. I used to write songs. I'll go home and see what I can do. He comes back in, a couple, in another day or so and he says, oh, I said, I tried 11 different ways trying to write this song. I can't get anything nearly as stupid. I said, oh, that's a shame, Bob. You know, it sounded like a good idea. He says, ah, but all is not lost. I've got a 15-year-old kid who is a total idiot. He's got a guitar, and he'll run through this thing in 10 minutes like a dose of salt. I said, okay. So... He takes this song and he writes Suicide is Painless, the song. And he writes it to it, but he dummies it. You know, when you dummy a song, say you want to write the words first and you don't have a tune. And he picked a Leonard Cohen song, which was uh, The Gambler, that had two chords, neither of which I liked. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Cohen was a telling of a good poet, but it was kind of a dumb song, and it took me... Along, I couldn't. I had a lot of trouble getting that song out of my head. So he wrote this thing, and I just wrote the. Uh, we had to. We had to pre-record it because it was going to be the first scene we shot, and uh, one of the actors, Kenny Primus, was going to sing it, which he did very well, and uh, they liked. They they loved the song. And it did, it shot the scene and went very well. What you hear is what I wrote. And then they started putting it up over the titles. And they said, what the hell are you doing that for? I mean, it, it's stupid. It doesn't fit. The helicopters and everybody running with the stretchers. They said, well, we like it. I said, I don't believe that. Usually nobody ever says we like it, you know. I said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I said, I'm leaving before I really screw it up, and left. Well, the thing went over to TV, and this song turned out to be my biggest copyright just because of the, uh, you know, people think I'm rich on it, which doesn't happen that way, because it's shown a hundred times a day, but it's in syndication, which is nothing like a, you know, when you get, when you go on the networks the first time. Then you get a decent taste. Usually the rates for cable are very low. So everybody thinks I'm a millionaire or a billionaire or something. They treat me with great deference. And I, I, I'm tempted to say forget it, <laughs> but I don't.
But that's the story of, you know, all these songs have uh, a great story to go with them. You know, listening to Johnny Mandel is just so fascinating to me. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to jazz and and I remember the remarkable albums like with Count Basie and Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra that had his name on the back. And I later learned that he won five Grammys for his work with those guys and then sort of fell into writing the television theme, which, of course, is based on the movie theme of MASH and just fantastic stuff. Uh, really, really a privilege to have him in our collection as well. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, there's a couple of shout-outs of other folks that we've interviewed over the years who have ties to television themes and television music that uh, are not included in today's podcast, but you can check them out and their uh, web clips on uh, on the NAM website. Isra Mohawk is a fantastic songwriter who uh, made some recordings with... Um, Cindy Lauper, she wrote uh, Change of Heart and um, is probably best known for writing songs for the Schoolhouse Rock series of cartoons on Saturday mornings, yay 70s. Uh, Interjection is one of my all-time favorites of hers. And then she was asked to write for uh, some cartoons that were featured on Sesame Street. So she's done all kinds of neat things with television programs over her career. So a shout out to, to her as well as uh, Ray Charles. Uh, not the Ray Charles you're thinking of, but as he lovingly called himself the other Ray Charles. Uh, in the 1950s, he had a choral group called the Ray Charles Singers, and they backed up prominent singers of the time, including Perry Como. I think they're on something like 18 recordings that went to the top of the charts for Mr. Como during his career. And just as sort of a choir director and arranger, he had this amazing career in Hollywood for many years. And then in 1977, there was a television show uh, that they were recording, and he was asked to help sing, uh, help the singers with the uh, the theme song. So he went and rehearsed the choir and the singers for this particular program called Three is Company. And um, the day of the recording was actually a deadline to get the pilot out. And so they were all rushed, the producers, and I think even the original uh, script writers for Three is Company were in the recording studio waiting for the theme to be completed so they could get it all in production. And nervously, Ray is standing there waiting for the singers to arrive who were caught in traffic in Los Angeles. Yes, even in 1977, they had traffic. And so um, last minute, guess who sings the theme that we now hear? It's Ray Charles himself. Fantastic story. I love it. Um, another shout out to a gentleman that we got to interview was uh, Sonny Curtis, who was personal friends with Buddy Holly. He grew up really in, involved with the early part of rock and roll. He wrote a song that many of you know called I Fought the Law and the Law Won. Um, and in 1970, he was asked to write a little ditty for the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is fantastically redone, by the way, by Joan Jett. You got to check that one out. Um, so anyway, just a couple of shout outs to those guys. And, and one more, uh, one of my favorite people that I ever got to interview was a uh, 
fun little songwriter named Milton DeLug. He had a big hit with Orange Blossom Sky for Nat King Cole, and he wrote a couple of other tunes um, as well. Hoop Dee Doo was a big hit. I know that sounds like it's very much dating anybody who can say the words Hoop Dee Doo, but yes, I just said it. And um, and then he wrote a song that was called Roller Coaster that became the theme song for What's My Line, which was a uh, game show that ran for like ever i think it had two long runs in the 50s and then again in the 70s and milton uh during his interview looked at me with a glint in his eye and said you know that song roller coaster that they use for that tv game show put my kids through college so (laughs) i love that story anyway um great folks and uh you can check out their interviews as mike said earlier on the nam website so let's continue with our podcast on TV themes um, with a uh, another great uh, fun little side story that we just sort of happened upon when we were interviewing Dan Sawyer, who's a, a great songwriter in his own right, worked with Disney, did uh, some things like uh, 101 Dalmatians, which I think you're going to hear about in this little clip. And then, of course, he wrote the theme, co-wrote the theme of Doug, the cartoon from 1991, until 1994, that thing ran. And a uh, fun show with a fun theme. So let's hear more from Dan Sawyer. So how did you get into television work? How did that come about? Well, uh, you know, as I was ta- as I was honing my skills as a composer, I wrote music for uh, some documentaries and some local small film projects. And uh, one of my friends who was also doing that got a call to go down to Orlando, Florida, to work for Disney on a new show called The New Mickey Mouse Club. Um, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to leave L.A. And it was a six-week gig, So, but I, he offered it to me, and I, I ended up doing it. And the six weeks became another six weeks, became another six weeks, and pretty soon I was there for like almost a year. And while I was doing that, um, which was a great show, it was, anyway, I won't get into that too much. While I was doing that, um, I became friends with Fred Newman, who was the host of the show, and we worked together on writing some commercial um, parodies, um, like Saturday Night Live type funny stuff, but for teenagers. Um, And one of Fred's buddies was Jim Jenkins, who created Doug for Nickelodeon. And at that point, it was just a pilot. And they said, do you want to do the music for this pilot? Probably nothing will ever happen with it. It won't go anywhere, but you know, it'll be a good experience. So we did all the music for the pilot in about two days. And um, sure enough, it got picked up. And the rest is history. It became one of the first Nickelodeon, one of the first three Nickelodeon shows uh, to have original animation. And you know, became famous worldwide. And from there, I, just, I started getting calls to do other things similar like, uh, to that, um, like Doug number two that was on uh, Disney. We did 65 episodes there and then 101 Dalmatians and PB&J Otter and Disney's Stanley and all kinds of, all kinds of primarily um, kid-based shows. And um, so that's how I got into that. That's really cool. Yeah. Is that rewarding work for you? Oh, it was, but it was also very intense. There's a lot of music basically about 23 minutes of music a week that has to be written, produced, recorded, and delivered. 
And then sometimes you get notes where they say, we don't like the music in, uh, at 3 minutes and 40 seconds. Can you replace that with something? So then you have to go back and patch things up. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's enjoyable, yes. It is, but it's, uh, it's, but it's very challenging. And the, the, I think that one of the challenges for musicians like us is that when you're writing underscore for a movie or television, your music isn't the primary focus. You're really supporting the story that they're trying to tell with the TV show or the movie. Um, so music becomes secondary. Unlike when you're listening to a new album or a new song by an artist that you like, where music is everything. Is that challenging? Um, you can't show off too much, is my guess. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, you don't show off too much. And especially if there's a conversation that's important where information is being transferred, you have to get out of the way of that. Mm. You learn how to do it. 101 Dalmatians was a Disney series, and we did 65 episodes. I wrote the music with Mark Waters, who was a, a co-composer, and generally we would split up the work. It wasn't like we, so I would take an episode, and he would take the next episode. And, and um, we had a 12-piece live band there in the studio, and then, which we would augment with MIDI. So um, and it came out really well. Um, it's a very traditional kind of cartoon with Cruella de Vil and all your favorites. Um, yeah, and it's still it's still playing because I see it on my ASCAP statement. So <laughs> it plays around the world. Yeah. Well, that's one that because of the movie back when it had a certain amount of music and recognizable, you know, sort of timbre to it. Did you feel like you had to follow that? We didn't. We because the actual concept of the show was a little different than the movie. It was, it was um, took place on the farm and it was more a little more rural. So we worked in things like harmonica in the score and fiddle and yeah, we didn't. I don't think we used any of the movie themes at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is probably more freeing than trying to follow something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they have, in the industry, in the scoring industry now, they have, you've probably heard of temp tracks. Temp meaning temporary music. And when someone's editing, when they're editing a movie or a TV show, they'll put in a temp track, which could be um, just a, somebody's CD or another composer's work. And it just gives the editor something to work with. And, um, but we as composers, when we, when we get a job and they've already temp-tracked everything, it makes it more difficult because you have to pretty much write something that sounds like the temp-track. So that dictates the tempo and the style usually. Depending, That all depends on the producer and the director if they really want you to do that. Sometimes they say, no, don't do the temp-track. Then you're more free. Mm. Yeah, it's all technical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> fun. Yeah. It's fun to think what it takes to get to someplace. Like Doug, you know, my kids know that tune, right? So yeah. How did, did, did the lyrics come first or the melody? Well, the, it, really a, the lyric is just do 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 There's really no lyric per se. Um, and most of that came from Fred Newman. You know, he wrote that, he wrote that theme. And then we embellished it and wrote the bridge and finished it out. So it was all very organic, you know. It just, it just, um, it just came out, and and really, it was so. Since Nickelodeon was new, relatively new, and Jumbo Pictures, which produced Doug, was completely new, just formed for that. 
they were thrilled to have us writing music for them, and they and they were very hands off, and and they they loved what we did, and you know that was it. It went out on the air like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I always think of you when I hear the guitar lick in there. I'm figuring that was your contribution for sure. Oh, the, in the middle, yeah. yeah. That's actually Roger's theme. Roger was the kind of the villain, the the kid that you know Doug's nemesis, and uh, <laughs> so yes, that was my that was my Ibanez guitar, you know, to an Ibanez tube screamer right into the board, I think, and uh, yeah, lots of guitar parts in that in the score too, lots of whammy bar stuff and. <laughs> We really had fun. That was so much fun doing that job. That was Dan Sawyer talking about uh, his writing on uh, both Disney and Nick shows. And I have to say, uh, growing up watching Doug, it's kind of amazing to now put a face to that guitar riff when you see Roger coming through. <laughs> uh, so that was a lot of fun and just love, you know, I think the one thing with all of these uh, stories is that you kind of find out a lot of them are just, they were there and they kind of just decided, hey, let's, sure, I'll try that out. Like, I'll write something for you. And it's just amazing all of these kind of coincidences and just, it's great to hear all these amazing stories about where these songs that we all know and love came from and how they're not always where you would assume they would come from, <laughs> i.e., you know, jazz musicians or, <laughs> or uh, you know, film composers and all this stuff, so... Pretty fantastic. I also like the fact that these songwriters, uh, oftentimes, you know, we're, we're joking and saying that, uh, okay, yeah, you know, this song put their kids through college and, you know, this is kind of an extra bonus of our career. But there's also a very serious part about, you know, the pride that a lot of them have in being involved with the opportunity to have a song that has such staying power as something like the Adams family. I mean, you can't beat that. That's a, that's something that everybody knows. And, and I think that they greatly appreciated that opportunity in their careers. And I think to sort of hit home that theme, when, when myself, uh, my dear friend Eric Glassnap, and my son Seth got to interview Jose Feliciano, at the end of his interview, we thought, you know what, let's throw in this last question here and, and ask about the television theme that he wrote, and that was for the comedy Chico and a Man, which ran from 1974 to 1978, and... I'm so glad we did. It, and I thought that this would be the uh, sort of our final thought of today's episode is we'll play that little clip um, from his interview, which is to me um, a great reminder of how important these things can be for people's careers like Jose. You're going to hear the sincerity in his voice. He's going to talk a little bit to my son about lessons that you can learn from the words of that song. You know, it wasn't just a theme for him. It was a message. And I think that's really, really important and something I'm very proud of. So thank you, everybody, for listening today. This has been super fun. I want to go back and watch all of these TV shows. And I'm sure Dan and Ashley want to do the same. So thank you again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. And enjoy Jose Feliciano. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi. I did Bag Full of Soul, then I did an album called Fantastic Feliciano, oh, right. and then um, the album Feliciano came along. That's when I met Rick Gerard, 
who had produced the Jefferson Airplane, and uh, later he produced Harry Nielsen. So um, uh, the Feliciano album really was my first successful album uh, in 1968. That album contained Light My Fire, California Dreamin', uh, and so that was my fourth album. Mm. Then, thank God I was on my way. Prior to that, by the way, uh, I started a Latin career in Argentina where I recorded uh, the Spanish torch ballads called Boleros, and they took off and I became a big star in Latin America first. And then in 1968, um, with the windows in Latin America being opened, the windows uh, in America were flung open in 68. I, I won two Grammys that year. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. What guitar did you play on that album? Do you remember? Uh, yes, I played a Candelas guitar. Oh. Candelas uh, had his own guitar shop on... 1066 Sunset Boulevard and he uh, it's a funny thing with Candelas um, I um, had borrowed one of his guitars and I told him I'd pay him actually a friend of mine by the name of Vera Pere had sent for one of his guitars and that was my first guitar took a liking to it, I guess. I loved it. I think um, Candelas made some great guitars. Now, the family still has a shop in L.A., and they also have a shop, I think, in Nashville, and they make great guitars, and uh, I, I love their guitars. Now, my guitars are made by Kurt Sand, who always has a booth with uh, at the NAMM convention uh, promoting the Jose Feliciano guitar that type of model see I gave him an idea and the idea was to make <clears throat> a nylon guitar with a dreadnought body you know with a body the size of a Martin D28 or that kind of thing because most classical guitars are small and the boxes are shallow they don't have the sound and when I suggested for him to make the dreadnought body, I was right on. I was on to something. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.